Mom's playing for me. Genesis 3:15 I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel Welcome to the weekend services here at Christ Community Chapel. My name is Zach. I'm one of the pastors. And I'm so glad you're here with us this weekend. Of course, this is the Thursday night service, but I say the weekend because uh, you're going to be watching this in the sanctuary in West Service, which is a little out of the normal uh, rhythm for us. So if you're new... Uh, on Sunday, this is not what normally happens. You don't normally have a video, but actually uh, I'm going to be in Seattle this weekend with our leadership team on a trip learning from a fellow church, trying to pick their brain on some things that we want to see uh, happen here that they've seen happen in a big way uh, there. So pray for us this weekend as we do that and thank God for video and technology and the production team who can make sure that this sermon counts not just for tonight on Thursday, uh, but for Sunday and already looking forward to seeing you next weekend. But for those of you that are here on Thursday night, thanks so much for being here. I'm really excited to conclude our sermon series. We're calling it A Year of Listening. That is our theme for January. That is our theme for 2024. We know it's going to be a noisy year. It feels like anymore. Uh, every year is a noisy year. Every day is a noisy day, but particularly this year because it's an election year. So there are a lot of people kind of clamoring for our attention, telling us they're the voice we need to listen to. And as a church, as individuals, as a group, uh, we want to find the voice of God. We want to lean into his voice to make sure he's the one we are listening to in 2024. And this series is a little bit of a pace setter in that direction. And it's been Great. I know last week, uh, Pastor Joe said this was going to be the last or the best week message of the whole series, and I don't appreciate that kind of pressure. <laughs> so uh, we'll see whether or not that ends up being true. But hey, if you have your Bible, would you open it to Genesis chapter 3? We're going to look at one verse, verse 15, which we had uh, read to us just so wonderfully a minute ago. If you have your phone, your tablet, you can take it out. If you're watching online, you can get to Genesis chapter 3 using your web browser. And if you are here and you're not super familiar with the Bible, finding your way around the Bible, we do make uh, certain Bibles available to you, this Bible, this kind of Bible right here, uh, here in this room and also in East Hall. So if you just want to grab one of those, uh, I can tell you that today's reading is on page 2. So you don't need to know your way around, just find page 2. And thanks for being here. This is all new to you. That's a big step. We're glad you took it. Uh, but as you're getting to Genesis chapter 3, let me hold out an outline that I'm going to use to kind of guide our time together. If you're a note taker, you can write these down. Otherwise, just kind of have them uh, in your head to make sense of where we're going. Three points, very simple. We're going to talk about these three things. We're talking about how Satan wounds, how Jesus heals, and how to participate in healing. Okay, how Satan wounds, how Jesus heals heals, and how to participate in healing. All right, let's start with the first one, how Satan wounds. Uh, if you read Genesis 3, you won't actually find the name Satan. Uh, it's not there. Instead, the Bible tells us that a snake is speaking to 
uh, Adam and Eve. It talks about the serpent being the most crafty uh, beast of the field. So we don't see the name Satan, but uh, the Bible as a whole would reinforce the idea that uh, this is not a talking snake as much as it is Satan uh, taking the form of a snake and speaking to Eve. There's a number of places in the Bible that point to this, but maybe the most clear one is in the book of Revelation, uh, the, the final book of the Bible, where Satan is referred on multiple occasions as the great serpent. Uh, Satan is being connected in those verses to this snake in Genesis. The beginning of the Bible and at the end of the Bible, the snake and Satan are seen as one. So when I say, how does Satan wound, I have in mind the serpent, but the serpent as representative of Satan. And I feel like in 2024, if you're gonna talk about Satan, you have to address this question. Come on, man, it's 2024. Are we really still gonna believe in Satan? Does anyone really still believe in this kind of great evil uh, being? And I wanna make sure that when I answer yes, I'm answering yes to what I think the Bible says about Satan and not what might be rattling around in your head or mine, thanks to the religious upbringing we had or pop culture or horror movies or anything else. So the Bible doesn't tell us that Satan is like evil God. You know, in the comic books, they have Superman and Bizarro Superman, and Bizarro Superman is like the evil version of Superman. And sometimes when we think about Satan, we think about Satan as a kind of all-powerful evil God, and he's battling it out with God, and you know, you read the Bible and you watch human history to see who's going to win, the bad guy God or the good guy God. Now, that's not the biblical picture of Satan. Satan is a fallen angel who certainly is powerful, but nowhere near as powerful as God. He, he's not all-knowing. He's not everywhere all at once. Those are things that are true of God. They're not things that are true of Satan. And I hate to spoil the Bible for you if you haven't read the book, okay? But just in case you don't finish it, uh, God wins, okay? There's no, you don't have to, it's not a cliffhanger. It's not an M. Night Shyamalan movie where at the end, there's going to be a big twist. If you remember way back when, when M. Night Shyamalan made movies, right? Yeah. This is not that story. God wins in the end. There's not a power comparison between the two. But nonetheless, the Bible tells us Satan is present and active in this world. But he's also not in the bushes, though. I need, I need you to know that. The Bible doesn't tell us that Satan is lurking around every corner or that he's the cause of all the evil in the world. If, if you're tempted to do something that you know you shouldn't, it's probably not Satan whispering that in your ear, okay? That is not the biblical view of Satan. You and I make bad choices all the time, and uh, we really don't have anyone else to blame for that but, but us, not, not Satan. The Bible isn't inviting us to blame everything on Satan. But I want you to consider this. If you do away with Satan, if you do away with a supernatural cause of some evil, there's gonna be a lot of things in the world that are really hard to explain. You see, the Bible affirms the idea that there are psychological causes of evil. The Bible uh, affirms that there are just evil people doing evil things. There are natural causes of evil. There's a lot of causes of evil. There's a lot of types. The Bible has categories for mental illness. It has categories for injustice. It has categories for all kinds of things. Satan is not behind every evil, but he is behind some. 
You know, when a guy, for example, walks into a building in, in the Christchurch shooting and he wears a GoPro on his helmet and he points it down at his gun so that you can watch the film of his shooting from a first-person view like a video game. And when he says after the fact, of course, long after he's dead, that he did it because he knew certain websites would find it funny and that he was just trolling everyone, I think there's something more going on there than psychology than injustice. And if you find yourself maybe at sometimes at a loss for explaining some horrific evil in history and in the world, perhaps you need to open up to the idea of a supernatural cause. And that's what Satan is. But nonetheless, that's what we're going to talk about tonight, how Satan wounds. And this verse is right smack dab in the middle of God passing out judgment for Adam and Eve eating from the tree. And Adam and Eve have done what so many of us do, is that when God says to Adam, what have you done? He blames Eve. And Eve turns to the snake. And then the snake, there's no one left to turn to. So God pronounces judgment on the serpent, on Satan. And he says simply this, I'm going to make it so that you will be an enemy of people. And people will be an enemy of you. And there's a person coming who's going to be your biggest enemy, and you're going to bruise his heel, but he is going to bruise your head. And of course, he has in mind there Jesus. This is foreshadowing. The one who's coming is going to be Jesus. The whole Old Testament, the first part of the Bible, invites you to read it like you're saying, when is this guy that God promised going to show up? And every time a heroic figure steps on the scene, you lean in and say, is it this guy? Is it, is it Abraham? Is it Moses? Is it Joshua? Is it David? And every time, each one of those guys makes sure you know it's not them. They mess up. It's Jesus. It's Jesus that will come in the New Testament. It's Jesus that will come in the Gospel of Matthew. It's Jesus who's the one promised here. And God tells Satan, you are going to bruise his heel. And that's a reference to the crucifixion of Jesus, that when Jesus comes, Satan will orchestrate it so that uh, many different groups and many different factions and many different geopolitical, socioeconomic forces will conspire so that Jesus will be crucified. But I think there's something more going on here than that, and it's that something more I want to invite you to lean into. That what God has in mind in particular is not just the crucifixion of Jesus, but what leads to the crucifixion of Jesus. He has in mind what Satan has already done in Genesis 3, which is that Satan will introduce a lie into the world. And that lie is what will crucify Jesus. That lie is what will introduce and bring about evil into our world. That lie is what's echoing in your heart and in mine. It's what shaped your family and mine, your community and mine. And that lie is that God is against us. That was the lie that Satan told Adam and Eve. He said, this isn't paradise. This is prison. God isn't for you. He's against you. He's not blessing you. He's limiting you. God said not to eat from this tree, but not because he's looking out for you, but rather because he doesn't want you to threaten his authority. He doesn't want you to be set free from his 
authority. God is not for you, Satan said. God is against you. That lie is what led to the crucifixion of Jesus. Because when God's own son came and told us the truth and showed us the truth, we assumed he was out to get us. So we murdered him. By the way, if you were to just keep reading in the story in Genesis, you would find just in the very next chapter in Genesis 4, a guy named Cain who believes this lie and because of it ignores God and because of it murders his brother. This lie that God is against us, that God is out to limit us, is what gives shape to our world. To help you make sense of that, let me pull uh, uh, something that relates to that or something that will help that make sense from the world of psychology. Uh, There's a psychologist, uh, Dr. Jeffrey Young, who years ago introduced a new form of therapy called schema therapy. And schema is this concept that children who undergo significant trauma, children who experience uh, difficult upbringings, end up forming these ways of moving forward in their lives. They come up with these coping mechanisms called schemas that help them to survive and to move forward in the difficult world in which, they're li- in which they live. But, but as helpful as those schemas seem to children, they actually become what Dr. Young calls life traps in adulthood. In other words, a child who develops a schema doesn't shed it when they leave home, they bring it with them. It's the way they've learned to make sense of the world. So it's the way they make sense of the world as an adult. Uh, let, me, let me give you an example. If a child, for example, grew up in a home in which they felt vulnerable all the time, maybe they weren't fed, they weren't bathed, they weren't taken care of, then as a consequence, they will learn certain behaviors to to survive in that environment. They'll do things like hoard food for themselves. They'll hide food under the bed so that when they're hungry, uh, they, they can survive. That's not normal behavior, but it is helpful behavior if you're not being fed as a child. But when that child grows up into adulthood, they'll take that mindset with them. So they will do things like hoard food or be incredibly anxious about how much money is in their bank. They will live in fear because fear is how they learned to survive. And it's interesting that Dr. Young says that that what happens is when an adult wrestles with their schema, there are three ways that they negatively deal with that. The first is that they surrender to it. They say things like, I will always have to live in fear. I will always have to look out for myself. I'm in constant danger of being deprived. Or he says they'll escape. They'll they'll turn to drugs or alcohol or workaholism or something that just takes their mind off of it so they don't have to think and reckon with the vulnerability they feel. Or they'll counterattack. They'll say, I'm going to make so much money and, and, and I'm going to put so much food in an underground bunker or in a garage or whatever so that I'll always be okay. I'm going to make sure that no one ever threatens me again. And I say all that to say that what the Bible is really telling us here is that in Genesis 3, Satan introduced a trauma into the human race. And that trauma was the lie that God is against us. That that lie led us to rebel. It led us to disobey. It led us to disbelieve, to tell God to mind his own business, to, to look 
to begin to look out for ourselves, to find other voices other than God's. And it did, it's not just that it happened to us in our infancy, but we carried it into adulthood so that for 10,000 years or however long people have been around, we have carried with us the idea that God is against us. It's just become the normal way we live. We're not aware of it. We're not conscious of it. For the most part, we just wake up every day saying the absolute worst thing I could do is listen to God. The absolute best thing I could do is to look out for myself. Consider that Dr. Young says there are three ways of dealing with this schema. And consider this, after 15 years of professional ministry, I can tell you that most of the people I meet fall into these three categories. There are those who surrender to the idea that God is against them. They decide that because of the guilt and shame of their past, God will never love them. There are those who seek to escape from the whole idea of God. They call themselves atheists and agnostics. They run headlong into whatever they think will fill the void in their heart because what they don't want to think about is whether or not God loves them. And then there are those that counterattack, who build lives of morality and religion and say to God, if you're out there, you're going to have to love me. And if you identify with any of those, I want you to see that the reason that's the rhythm of our hearts and the rhythm of our lives is because of what happened here in Genesis 3. That the wounding of Satan is not the whisper of temptation in your ear necessarily. The wounding of Satan is not the sickness you get or the calamities you experience. The wounds of Satan is the lie that's tucked into your heart. It's the lie that's tucked into your mind. It's this idea that God is out to limit you and to destroy you, that he could never and would never and will never love you. So you're not the only one that's ever thought that. We have all wrestled with that. And it began here. And it led to the crucifixion of Jesus. It's the lie that gives shape to our world. And you can tell even now that we've all experienced it by the way the room feels. But I want you to see that God isn't just telling us that that's going to happen. He's giving us hope because he's not just focused on how Satan will wound, but on how, second point, Jesus heals. The way out of any schema, at least the first step, is a contrast narrative. It's an experience, a relationship that invites you to see that perhaps maybe the way you thought it made sense to live, the way you thought things had to be, is not actually how they are. It's an example that challenges your preconceptions. I'll give you, I'll give you something from my own marriage. I, I say this in every time that my wife and I teach the Exploring Marriage class here at the church. When, in, when I was growing up, the way my family dealt with conflict is we didn't. So if you upset me, I didn't say anything. I just buried it in the file I kept on you in my heart. And if you said, I'm sorry, I would say, that's fine. Sure, oh, it's fine, yeah. But what I really meant was, I'm going to tuck this away, and if I need it later, I'm going to bring it out. In my family, anger burned cold. 
It led to shunning. It led to being quiet. It led to being dismissive. It led to passive-aggressive comments. And that's just the way I dealt with conflict my entire life. So fast forward, and I meet Amy in college, and that's how I plan on dealing with conflict with her, because it's what I know, because it's what I've experienced, because to me, that's normal, but not for Amy. In fact, the very first time that Amy did something that hurt my feelings, the very first time she did something where she was wrong, she said to me, hey, Zach, I'm really sorry for doing that. And I said to her, yeah, yeah, whatever, yeah, yeah. And she said, no, 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 I'm really sorry. Do you forgive me? And I said, mm, fine. And she said, can I give you a hug so I know we're okay? And I still remember that moment because in that moment I realized there was a different way of dealing with conflict. Here was someone who actually cared enough about me to say, I don't want this day to end without us being okay. And that invite me, invited me to consider a whole new world of how to deal with conflict. Friends, what God has done to shake us out of this lie, what God has done to free us from this prison of believing that he's against us is he's given us the counter, the, the contrast, the different narrative in the person and work of Jesus Christ. You see, God says to Satan, I'm going to send someone and you're going to bruise his heel, but he will bruise your head. Some translations will say he will crush your head because Satan will wound for a couple of days, but Jesus will defeat for eternity because what Jesus shows us is that God is not who we think he is. See, Satan says to Adam and Eve, God is out to limit you, to inhibit you, to, to destroy you, to, to minimize you. But Jesus comes in the Gospels and lives a life of obedience to God, saying to us, watch, watch what happens when I trust God. Watch what happens when I listen to God. Wait and see. Watch my life. Is he out to limit me, to inhibit me? Is that true of who he is? Watch me. I am the contrast. I am the counter narrative. And Jesus lives an incredible life and a beautiful life, but it does lead to the cross. And it leads to him dying. And in that moment, that Friday night when Jesus is dead, it's as though all of our fears are validated. All of our concerns are, are proven to be true. This is what happens if you trust God. It's as though Satan himself is saying, see, 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 I told you, if you listen to God, you end up bruised, beaten, naked, poor, mocked, embarrassed, and dead. But three days later, Jesus raises from the dead and he says, see, see, God isn't out to limit you, to inhibit you, to destroy you, to, to marginalize you. God is actually out for your good, not your momentary good, but your eternal good. And even if trusting God leads to death, Jesus says, you'll just get back up. So because Jesus tells us that not only did he come to show us that God can be trusted, but he came in order to live and die in our place. That when God sends Adam and Eve out of Eden, he puts an angel, if you remember last week, he puts an angel with a flaming sword there so that they can't come back in. But the violence that will happen when they come back in is actually done to Jesus. 
It's Jesus who will be torn apart. It's Jesus who will undergo the anger and wrath of God as the righteous punishment for my sin and for yours in order that it could be exhausted on him, in order that he could die in judgment, in order that when he rose from the dead, there would be no anger or wrath or judgment left for us if we grab hold of him. You see, the entire Bible is God defeating the lie that is in your heart and in mine, in your head and in mine, that shaped your family and mine. It is God defeating that lie because what he wants is for us to see that all he's ever done is love us. You see, just as that child who grew up with a schema, with a life trap, with an incorrect understanding of the world that they had to have in order to survive. And just as they carried it into adulthood and damaged themselves and others because of what had happened to them and because of the choices that they made, so also have we bought into a lie and damaged ourselves and each other because of it. But God didn't abandon us. He gave us a contrasting narrative. Friends, what if everything we thought was true about God is wrong? That's what this passage is about. That's what this series is about. Because you see, we'll never listen to God unless we're convinced he's for us. We'll never listen to God unless we're sure that he loves us, unless we're sure he forgives us, unless we're sure he is leading us somewhere good. And that's exactly why Jesus came. And that leads me to my third point, which is to say, if Satan wounds and Jesus heals, how do we participate in the healing? And there are three answers to that. I just want to walk you through them. The first answer is that we decide to believe Jesus. This is what it means to become a Christian. And I want you to hear me on this because in God's grace and in God's incredible goodness, so many of you coming week after week are not yet Christians. You're here and you're wrestling and you're working through it. And it's amazing to us that you're here and we're so glad. And we try to create a safe space for you to work through things at your own pace. But every now and then it's appropriate to say this to you. You need to make a decision. Because the fault line of human history is not black and white, rich or poor, Republican, Democrat, American, not American. The fault line of human history is those who believed the lie and those who believe Jesus. And those who believe the lie, they look differently. Some are surrendering, some are escaping, some are counterattacking through religion. But at the end of the day, it, we're all the same. We think God is against us, but there is a way to believe because of Jesus that that's not true. Are you there? Have you come to believe that Jesus, his life and his death and his resurrection is proof that God is for you, not against you, that God loves you, that God wants to include you? Because if you are, you must decide. That's why we put such an emphasis, by the way, on baptism here at Christ Community Chapel, because baptism is a person telling us, telling all of us, hey, hey, the lie is a lie. And even if God leads me to death, symbolized by me being dunked into the water, he will raise me up. 
You have to decide. But the second thing, if you're here and you're a Christian, is you have to decide daily. One of the things that is so interesting about schema therapy is they will say that you have to move from your schema to your values. In other words, you have to move from what isn't true to what is true. But the difficulty with that is if you grew up in a home where you weren't fed all the time, that vulnerability that you feel, that's your default setting. So if you do nothing, you will wake up saying, I'm in danger. So it takes a great deal of intentionality to say, I feel this way, but that isn't true. Friends, it's no different with Jesus. The default setting that you and I have is the lie. It's the air we've breathed our entire lives. It's what our culture tells us. Don't listen to God. Find your, find your purpose in sexual fulfillment. Don't listen to God. Identify your own reality. Don't listen to God. Chart your own course. It's in our music. It's in our movies. It's in what we read. It's in what we say. It's in what we hear. So it takes intentionality to say, that's a lie. This is true. It's why it's so desperately important that you and I seek the voice of God daily. Not just that one time we say, okay, Jesus, I believe you, but that daily we're saying, I believe, help my unbelief. I know it's a lie, Jesus, but it's my default setting. I know it's a lie, but I'll go right back to it. If something doesn't change, shape me. This is the work, by the way, of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Lean into it, not away from it. But the third thing, the third thing it means to participate in healing is that we do it together. So when this church will really begin, or I should say continue, to change this region and even further in God's grace is when you and I collectively begin to lean into the voice of God. We begin to trust God. Listen, listen, even now, even now, I want you to understand there are people, no matter what service you're watching this in, there are people right now who are giving their time to tell your kids about God's love for them. You know why? Because the lie of self-centeredness they have come to see is a lie. And they're leaning into the voice of God who is telling them, it's better that you skip brunch or you miss a little bit of the football pregame in order to sit with those seven-year-olds and tell them about Jesus. Don't you see the beauty of that? You're sitting in a room right now. This room is here because a generation of people decades ago said we could buy a, ha a lake house or a boat or a second car or more whatever, but instead, what if we listen to the voice of God and we build a place where people can hear about him? Don't you see the beauty that happens? When it's not just you listening to the voice of God and me, not just seeking guidance for our own lives, but collectively saying, God, what could you do with a people who don't believe the lie anymore? And who, because of Jesus, are listening to you. That's what we want for 2024, for you, for me, for us. Let's pray. Father God, awaken us to the ways we have believed the lie. To the areas of our lives we close off to you because we're so sure you will wither us. Help us to see, maybe for the first time, 
or yet again, who you really are because of Jesus. Help us to put down the lie, to reject the lie, and to walk in the truth of your love, your mercy, your grace, your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.